Booker T. Washington, who died in the early morning hours of November 14, 1915, at age, well, nobody knows how old he was. He, least of all, he never had a birthday because he never knew the day on which he was born. He couldn't say if he was a Taurus or Aquarius or an Aries or a Scorpio because no one ever recorded the month in which he was born. He didn't even really know which year he'd been born in either, but he was reasonably sure it was either 1855 or 1856. The White family that owned the plantation where he was born near Hales Ford, Virginia, also owned the people that work on it. They owned Booker T. Washington. There was no question about that. He was their property. He could be bought or sold at their pleasure. He had a dollar value. Low at the time of his birth, but as he grew, he would become more expensive. He'd reach his peak selling price around the age of 17 and hold there until about 30, at which point the cost of buying Booker T. Washington would begin to decline. If he lived into his 60s, you could have owned him for next to nothing. But all you have to do is read the first two or three pages of this man's autobiography to realize that Booker T. Washington was not a slave, he had never been a slave, and would never, for a single day of his life, think or act or feel like a slave. Now, he knew as well as any of the people around him that he was, in fact, in bondage. In the accounting books of the plantation owner, he, his mother, and all the rest of them would be listed as a form of livestock, like a horse or a pig. But every single page of his autobiography, Up From Slavery, radiates such humanity, such wisdom and compassion, such unimpeachable virtue, and such incandescent intelligence that you immediately know in your bones that the words you are reading might have been written by a man in bondage, a man legally owned by someone else. But words like these, thoughts like these, could never have come from a slave. You see, Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington, born sometime around 1855 or 56, isn't about black people, and it isn't about white people. It's about slavery, mental slavery, written by a black man who came to realize entirely through his own will and effort and wisdom and fundamental humility that the white man that owned him was far more enslaved than he had ever been or could ever be. When you get right down to it, it isn't even a book about people at all. It's an instruction manual on how to become a person. I have watched carefully the influence of the toothbrush, and I am convinced there are a few single agencies of civilization that are more far-reaching. How many people have you met that could stand to apply that adage to themselves? What did they look like, as if that mattered? Up From Slavery was published in the first year of the last century. If this book, had been read aloud to every fourth grade student in America at any time between 1901 and today, virtually all of our problems would be way, way behind us. And the racial problem could have been, and by some miracle yet might be, by far the easiest to solve and the first to go. I was born a slave on a plantation in Franklin County, Virginia. I am not quite sure of the exact place or exact date of my birth, 
but at any rate, I suspect I must have been born somewhere and at some time. His place of birth was in a 14 by 16 foot dirt floor log cabin. Washington would share this space with his brother John, his sister Amanda, and his mother named Jane until they were set free at the end of the Civil War. Jane was the cook for the plantation, and this cabin was the plantation's kitchen. The cabin was ferociously hot in the summer, especially with the constantly frying skillets, and at nighttime in the winter, the cruel, cold wind of Virginia blew unimpeded through all of the gaps around the serving hole in the door. They huddled together in what Washington called a bundle of filthy rags laid upon the dirt floor. Now, the bigger he got, the more work he had to do. By age six, he would, once a week, lead a single horse loaded with enormous bags of grain three miles down to the mill to be ground. It's a job he particularly hated. No matter how careful he was, the huge sacks of corn would inevitably shift and then fall off the horse. Booker was too small to load them back on again, and so he would have to wait, often for hours, for someone to come along and help him. Now, any reader of Up From Slavery will find no shortage of incidents that simply slap you in the face with what the reality of slavery did, not only to a person's body, but to their mind and spirit. One that stuck with Booker Washington is one that stuck with me too. I remember that I asked one colored man who was about 60 years old to tell me something of his history. He said that he had been born in Virginia and sold into Alabama in 1845. I asked him how many were sold at the same time. He said there were five of us, myself, my brother, and three mules. But there was much else here that would surprise you too, and many acts of generosity and compassion on the parts of the slaves themselves. Again and again, the people who had been bought and sold and treated like animals had wellsprings of humanity that can scarcely be believed. Washington would write, there are many instances of Negroes tenderly caring for their former masters and mistresses who for some reason have become poor and dependent since the war. I know of instances where the former masters of slaves have for years been supplied with money by their former slaves to keep them from suffering. I have known of still other cases in which the former slaves have assisted in the education of the descendants of their former owners. I know of a case on a large plantation in the South in which a young white man, the son of the former owner of the estate, has become so reduced in purse and self-control by reason of drink that he is a pitiable creature. And yet, notwithstanding the poverty of the colored people themselves on this plantation, they have for years supplied this young white man with the necessities of life. The whole machinery of slavery was so constructed as to cause labor, as a rule, to be looked upon as a badge of degradation, of inferiority. Hence, labor was something that both races on the slave plantation sought to escape. The slave system on our place, in a large measure, took the spirit of self-reliance and self-help out of the white people. My old master had many boys and girls, but not one, so far as I know, ever mastered a single trade or special line of productive industry. You know, it's amazing to me and appalling too 
that so many of the human beings actually held as slaves, people born in dirt floor cabins and who could be whipped, bought, sold, or even killed on another man's whim, had so much more compassion and so much less rage than the people born into lives of unimaginable comfort and utter lack of real hardships seven generations after slavery was put into its long overdue grave. The problem with Booker Washington was that he was insufficiently furious for modern tastes. Few people who were not right in the midst of the scenes can form any exact idea of the intense desire which the people of my race showed for an education. Few were too young and none too old to make the attempt to learn. Day school, night school, Sunday school were always crowded, and often many had to be turned away for want of room. Now, after the Civil War, the law mandated that the same free education available to white children had to be made available to black children as well. But places like Macon County, Alabama, whose county seat was the small town of Tuskegee, halfway between Montgomery and Columbus, Georgia, spent $13 per year on white students and about 20 cents each on black ones. White schools averaged 30 students per teacher. Black schools had 200 or more. And the quality of most of the teachers hired to teach in black schools was simply appalling. I remember there came into our neighborhood one of this class who was in search of a school to teach. And the question arose while he was there as to the shape of the earth and how he could teach the children concerning the subject. He explained his position in the matter by saying that he was prepared to teach that the earth was either flat or round, according to the preference of a majority of his patrons. Now, in the decades to come, two men, two, a former slave born on a Virginia plantation and a first-generation Jewish immigrant from Chicago, would form a partnership that would create 5,357 schools in 883 counties, providing a first-rate education to over 650,000 Black children throughout the South. And at least 10% of those schools are still in existence today. Fire Booker's stepfather had found a job in the salt mines of Malden, West Virginia. They were hiring. The stepfather took a job in the mines and also saw to it that the two small boys, John and Booker, had jobs also. Booker, who was not yet in his teens, was tending to a salt furnace. He usually had to be at work by four in the morning. Now, it wasn't long before he had transitioned into the same kind of work that my ancestors were doing at that exact same time. My ancestors were working as coal miners in Lancashire, England, and Booker T. Washington, was working in a coal mine in West Virginia. It was fully a mile from the opening of the coal mine to the face of the coal, and all, of course, was in the blackest darkness. I do not believe that one ever experiences anywhere else such darkness as he does in a coal mine. I many times found myself lost in that mine. To add to the horror of being lost, sometimes my light would go out. And then if I did not happen to have a match, I would wander about in the darkness until by chance I found someone to give me a light. The work was not only hard, but it was dangerous. There was always the danger of being blown to pieces by a premature explosion of powder or being crushed by falling slate. Accidents from one or the other of these causes were frequently occurring, and this kept me in constant fear. 
But it was there, in the stifling hot and perfectly dark underground hell, that Booker T. Washington first saw a different kind of light. During one of his shifts, he heard the other black miners talking about a school specifically for black students that had just been opened in Hampton, Virginia. As they went on describing the school, it seemed to me that it must be the greatest place on earth. And not even heaven presented more attractions for me at that time than did the Hampton Normal and Agricultural Institute in Virginia about which these men were talking. I resolved at once to go to that school, although I had no idea where it was or how many miles or how I was going to reach it. I remembered only that I was on fire constantly with one ambition, and that was to go to Hampton. This thought was with me day and night. Booker continued in the mines for several months until he heard about an opening as a house servant for one Mrs. Viola Ruffner, lately of Vermont, but now looking for domestic help in West Virginia, where she had moved after the war with her husband, a former Union general. Many people had already seen that opportunity and taken it, but left after a week or two due to the ferociousness of Mrs. Ruffner. The pay was $5 a month. I had heard so much about Miss Ruffner's severity that I was almost afraid to see her and trembled when I went into her presence. I had not lived with her many weeks, however, before I began to understand her. I soon began to learn that, first of all, she wanted everything kept clean about her, that she wanted things done promptly and systematically, and that at the bottom of everything, she wanted absolute honesty and frankness. Nothing must be sloven or slipshod. Every door, every fence must be kept in repair. From fearing Mrs. Ruffner, I soon learned to look upon her as one of my best friends. When she found that she could trust me, she did so implicitly. During the one or two winters that I was with her, she gave me an opportunity to go to school for an hour in the day during a portion of the winter months. But most of my studying was done at night, sometimes alone, sometimes under someone whom I could hire to teach me. Mrs. Ruffner always encouraged and sympathized with me in all my efforts to get an education. Now, by the fall of 1872, young Booker Washington decided it was time to head for the Hampton Institute, no matter how far it may be or in what direction. When he announced that he was finally heading to the school that educated former slaves, he was struck at the response the news of his departure would bring. The dirt poor people he had known his entire life took up a collection to see him on his way. They had spent the best days of their lives in slavery and hardly expected to live to see the time when they would see a member of their race leave home to attend a boarding school. Some of these older people would give me a nickel, others a quarter, or a handkerchief. It's about 400 miles from Malden to Hampton, and it took him only a few hours to realize how woefully unprepared he was for this trip. Any hope he may have had about traveling by train was the first to go. It would be a slow, bumpy stagecoach over the mountains. Now, after a particularly long ride, the stagecoach stopped for the night at an unpainted ramshackle house that rather grandly styled itself as a hotel. As his fellow passengers were given their rooms, Washington discovered that the proprietor would not allow him to stay, not in a room, not in the lobby, not in the tool shed, and not in the barn. 
The hungry, exhausted young man spent the night in the freezing mountain air by constantly walking and jogging. He wasn't able to get a moment's sleep the entire night because if he had so much as sat down in his thin coat and homespun clothes, he would have frozen to death. My whole soul was so bent upon reaching Hampton that I did not have time to cherish any bitterness toward the hotel keeper. Booker Washington had managed to scale the same moral heights as Frederick Douglass. At one time, Mr. Douglass was traveling in the state of Pennsylvania and was forced, on account of his color, to ride in the baggage car in spite of the fact that he had paid the same price for his passage that the other passengers had paid. When some of the white passengers went into the baggage car to console Mr. Douglas, and one of them said to him, I am sorry, Mr. Douglas, that you have been degraded in this manner, Mr. Douglas straightened himself up on the box upon which he was sitting and replied, They cannot degrade Frederick Douglas. The soul that is within me, no man can degrade. I am not the one that is being degraded on account of this treatment, but those who are inflicting it upon me. Now, when he finally arrived in Richmond, he was still 80 miles shy of Hampton. It was his first encounter with a large city. He didn't even bother asking about lodging since he was utterly penniless at this point, and he was also very, very hungry. On the verge of collapse, he noticed that a small section of the wood-planked Richmond sidewalk extended a few feet over a shallow culvert. He waited until there was no one in sight, and then he crawled under the boards. He fell into a cold sleep punctuated throughout the night by the sounds of people walking on the wooden boards an inch or two above his nose. He awoke the next morning feeling much refreshed but hungrier than ever. Once he emerged from under the sidewalk, he noticed that he was not far from a pier where a large ship was unloading its cargo of pig iron. I went at once to the vessel and asked the captain to permit me to help unload the vessel in order to get money for food. The captain, a white man who seemed to be kind-hearted, consented. I worked long enough to earn money for my breakfast, and it seems to me, as I remember it now, to have been about the best breakfast that I have ever eaten. A pig iron ingot is heavy. It's very heavy. Lifting a shovel full of those things will get your full attention. He was weak from a lack of food and a lack of sleep, but he had worked so hard that the captain asked if he could continue working for pay. Booker told him he would be very glad to do so. He continued to unload pig iron for several days, earning enough to feed himself and, if he economized, save a small amount of money, just enough to get him to Hampton. Now, the only way to do that was to continue to sleep under the sidewalk, which he did for several days. He then thanked the captain for his kindness and left Richmond for the final leg of his journey. Booker Washington arrived at the door of the Hampton Institute with precisely 50 cents remaining. He 
had suffered enough hardships and disappointment to have turned back an army of ordinary people, but when he finally laid his eyes on the prize, the elegant three-story brick building founded by both black and white members of the American Missionary Association in 1868, all memory of the hunger and cold and aching muscles vanished in an instant. It seemed to me to be the largest and most beautiful building I had ever seen. I felt that I had reached the promised land, and I resolved to let no obstacle prevent me from putting forth the highest effort to fit myself to accomplish the most good in the world. Now, he'd made it to the front door. Now all he had to do was get inside. Having been so long without proper food, a bath, and a change of clothing, I did not, of course, make a very favorable impression upon her, and I could see at once that there were doubts in her mind about the wisdom of admitting me as a student. In the meantime, I saw her admitting other students, and that added greatly to my discomfort, for I felt, deep down in my heart, that I could do as well as they if I could only get a chance to show what was in me. After some hours had passed, the head teacher said to me, The adjoining recitation room needs sweeping. Take the broom and sweep it. It occurred to me at once that here was my chance. Never did I receive an order with more delight. I knew that I could sweep, for Mrs. Ruffner had thoroughly taught me how to do that when I lived with her. Well, by now, it should be obvious that this young man had two essential qualities, and he had them in abundance. The first was that he never, ever let an opportunity to improve himself and his station in life pass him by. And the second is that he was more willing to work harder and longer than any person I have ever heard of, living or dead. I swept the recitation room three times. Then I got a dusting cloth and dusted it four times. All the woodwork around the walls, every bench, table, and desk, I went over four times with my dusting cloth. Besides, every piece of furniture had been moved and every closet and corner in the room had been thoroughly cleaned. I had the feeling that in a large measure my future depended upon the impression I made upon the teacher in the cleaning of that room. When I was through, I reported to the head teacher. She was a Yankee woman who knew just where to look for dirt. She went into the room and inspected the floors and closets. Then she took her handkerchief and rubbed it on the woodwork about the walls and over the table and benches. When she was unable to find one bit of dirt on the floor or a particle of dust on any of the furniture, she quietly remarked, I guess you will do to enter this institution. I was one of the happiest souls on earth. The sweeping of that room was my college examination, and never did any youth pass an examination for entrance into Harvard or Yale that gave him more genuine satisfaction. I have passed several examinations since then, but I have always felt that this was the best one I ever passed. He'd gotten himself admitted. Now. He needed to find a way to pay for his tuition, room, and board. The future director of the Tuskegee Institute considered himself exceedingly fortunate to have been offered the position as a janitor at the Hampton Institute. Wouldn't be enough to cover tuition during regular hours, but that didn't matter much since he'd be working 14-hour days anyway. 
It did, however, provide room and board and enough money to pay for night school. At Hampton, I not only learned that it was not a disgrace to labor, but learned to love labor, not alone for its financial value, but for labor's own sake and for the independence and self-reliance which the ability to do something which the world wants done brings. At that institution, I got my first taste of what it meant to live a life of unselfishness, my first knowledge of the fact that the happiest individuals are those who do the most to make others useful and happy. Now, we have to compress his time as a student at Hampton, but suffice it to say that given his eagerness and his work ethic, his progress was astounding. So much so, in fact, that in May of 1881, the founder and director of the Hampton Institute pulled him aside one night just after chapel and told him that he had received a letter from some gentleman in Alabama asking him to recommend someone to serve as the director of a small institute for black students patterned directly on the success that had been achieved at Hampton. He asked Booker if he thought he could handle the position. An astonished Booker Washington told him that he'd be willing to try. Several days passed, and then on a Sunday, once again at the Institute Chapel, the founding director stood in front of the entire student body and unfolded a telegram which read, Booker T. Washington will suit us. Send him at once. The chapel exploded in cheers and applause. He arrived at the small town expecting to see the kind of grand three-story brick structure that had greeted him in Virginia when he first had arrived at the Hampton Institute. To my disappointment, I found nothing of the kind. I did find, though, that which no costly building and apparatus can supply. Hundreds of hungry, earnest souls who wanted to secure knowledge. Washington arrived at Tuskegee only to discover that there was no school, no buildings of any kind nor was there any land, and neither was there the money nor the supplies with which to obtain them. Washington managed to rent a dilapidated shanty on the grounds of the local Black Methodist Church. When it rained, and it rains hard in Alabama, a student would get up from his own desk to hold an umbrella over his head while he graded the papers. He made it his mission to spend a month with the local Black families and find out what was needed most. He found many farmers who were sharecroppers, people who rented farmland and paid the rent with the crops that they grew. Virtually all of them were in debt to the people who owned the farms they were working on. His time with local black families had given him a realization of the size of the task in front of him. He not only had to educate these people, former slaves as he himself had been, he would have to teach them all of the difficult, unglamorous fundamentals that he believed, if applied, would invariably succeed over time. His work would not be as simple as turning former slaves into students. He would have to turn them into citizens too. Nevertheless, he announced that the Tuskegee Institute would open on July 4th, 1881, out of the existing shanty until new accommodations could be found. Both the black and white residents of Tuskegee were excited by this news. Many of the white residents had high hopes for the school and supported it both morally and financially. Many, however, did not. There were not a few white people in the vicinity of Tuskegee who looked with some disfavor upon the project. 
they questioned its value to the colored people and had a fear that it might result in bringing about trouble between the races. Some had the feeling that in proportion as the Negro received education, in the same proportion would his value decrease as an economic factor in the state. These people feared the result of education would be that the Negroes would leave the farms and that it would be difficult to secure them for domestic service. Now, after three months of careful study, Washington decided that his best bet would be to attempt to buy an old and abandoned plantation that was, as we might say today, a real steal. Only $500, property, house, and all. But Washington didn't have $500. He had nothing like $500. So Booker Washington went to the owner of the property, a white man and former slaveholder, and asked if there was any way to make an arrangement. To his astonishment, the owner said that he could have the land for $250 down with a balance to be paid within one year. Now, that was the easy part. The hard part was writing to General J.F.B. Marshall, treasurer of the Hampton Institute, asking to borrow the $250 from Institute funds against Washington's personal guarantee. General Marshall responded immediately. He regretted to inform Booker that he had no authority to spend Institute money outside of the school. He also added that he'd be delighted to lend him the money out of his own pocket. Washington moved the school onto the property within a few days. The students were delighted for a day or two. As soon as we got the cabins in condition to be used, I determined to clear up some land so that we could plant a crop. When I explained my plan to the young men, I noticed that they did not seem to take to it very kindly. It was hard for them to see the connection between clearing land and an education. Besides, many of them had been school teachers, and they questioned whether or not clearing land would be in keeping with their dignity. In order to relieve them from any embarrassment, each afternoon after school, I took my axe and led the way to the woods. When they saw that I was not afraid or ashamed to work, they began to assist with more enthusiasm. We kept at the work each afternoon until we had cleared about 20 acres and had planted a crop. Notwithstanding what I have said about them in these respects, I have never seen a more earnest and willing company of young men and women than these students were. They were all willing to learn the right thing as soon as it was shown them what was right. Now, meanwhile, of course, there was the question of raising the remaining $250. After a few weeks, a new teacher arrived, a Miss Olivia Davidson. She immediately began knocking on every door in the town, asking if they could agree to give some small thing, a cake, some bread or pies, perhaps a chicken if they had one to spare, something that could then be sold at fundraising festivals that would provide a day's food, fun, and entertainment for both black and white residents. Of course, the colored people were glad to give anything that they could spare. But I want to add that Miss Davidson did not apply to a single white family, so far as I now remember, that failed to donate something. And in many ways, the white family showed their interest in the school. Several of these festivals were held, and quite a little sum of money was raised. A canvas was also made among the people of both races for direct gifts of money, and most of those applied to gave small sums. Now, after three months, they'd raised enough money to repay General Marshall his half of the $500 purchase price, and two months later, they paid the now former owner 
his $250 balance as well, six full months ahead of schedule. The Tuskegee Institute now held the deed to 100 acres of land and no mortgage to pay. So many black students were flocking to the Institute that they soon realized that they would have to commit to a real school, something large and substantial. They drew up plans for a fine structure that would cost them $6,000, an inconceivable sum to all of them. But $250 had seemed inconceivable six months earlier. The students would supply the labor for this new building. The problem was getting started. When it became known in the town that we were discussing the plans for a new, large building, a southern white man who was operating a sawmill not far from Tuskegee came to me and said that he would gladly put all the lumber necessary to erect the building on the grounds, with no other guarantee for payment than my word that it would be paid for when we secured some money. I told the man frankly that at this time we did not have in our hands one dollar of the money needed. Notwithstanding this, he insisted on being allowed to put the lumber on the grounds. After we had secured some portion of the money, we permitted him to do this. Now, finding a way to pay for all of this caused no end of sleepless nights for Booker Washington and the rest of the staff. The Tuskegee main building was to be made mostly of brick, but there was no brickyard in Tuskegee. Not only did he need bricks, but everyone else in the county, black and white, needed them as well. I had always supposed that brick-making was very simple, but I soon found out by bitter experience that it required special skill and knowledge, particularly in the burning of the bricks. After a good deal of effort, we molded about 25,000 bricks and put them into a kiln to be burned. Now, unfortunately, due to his lack of experience, the kiln had been improperly constructed, so they built a second kiln. It, too, was a failure. Then they tried with a third kiln, and that failed as well. Now, by this point, Washington was out of money, and he wasn't out of options. He went to a pawn shop in nearby Montgomery and left with $15, but without his watch. That was enough money for kiln number four, which proved to be a great success. Once it was up and running, he returned to Montgomery to retrieve his watch, but the time had expired and it had been sold. I never regretted the loss of it, he said. Up From Slavery was published in 1901. In it, Washington says the following. Brickmaking has now become such an important industry at the school that last season our students manufactured 1,200,000 of first-class bricks of a quality suitable to be sold in any market. The making of these bricks taught me an important lesson in regard to the relations of the two races in the South. Many white people who had no contact with the school and perhaps no sympathy with it came to us to buy bricks because they found out that ours were good bricks. They discovered that we were supplying a real want in the community. The making of these bricks caused many of the white residents of the neighborhood to begin to feel that the education of the Negro was not making him worthless, but that in educating our students, we were adding something to the wealth and comfort of the community. As the people of the neighborhood came to us to buy bricks, we got acquainted with them. They traded with us, and we with them. 
Our business interests became intermingled. We had something which they wanted. They had something which we wanted. I have found, too, that it is the visible, the tangible, that goes a long ways in softening prejudices. The actual sight of a first-class house that a Negro has built is ten times more potent than pages of discussion about a house that he ought to build or perhaps could build. Now, this, in a nutshell, was Booker T. Washington's strategy. He would provide something of value. He would turn the Tuskegee Institute into a factory that manufactured excellence. Together, they would render the entire theory of black inferiority ridiculous on its face, and the proof of it was not an assertion or a demand. It was something tangible, something you could hold in your hand, like a well-made brick. From the first, I resolved to make the school a real part of the community in which it was located. I was determined that no one should have the feeling that it was a foreign institution dropped down in the midst of the people for which they had no responsibility and in which they had no interest. I noticed that from the very fact that they had been asking to contribute toward the purchase of the land made them begin to feel as if it was going to be their school to a large degree. So far as I know, the Tuskegee School at the present time has no warmer and more enthusiastic friends anywhere than it has among the white citizens of Tuskegee and throughout the state of Alabama and the entire South. But that, of course, was about to change. W.E.B. Du Bois was born on February 23, 1868, three years after the abolition of slavery in the United States. He grew up in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, long the enlightened home of free blacks with an extensive history of land ownership. He attended integrated schools, had black and white playmates, and was generally treated with equality and respect. His first real exposure to racism came when he left to attend Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. After three years of it, he'd had enough. He returned to Massachusetts, secured a well-deserved scholarship to Harvard University, where he graduated cum laude and in 1892, continued his intellectual pursuits at the University of Berlin, where the ideological foundations of socialism were exciting and new and being constantly debated. He returned to America, and in 1895, he became the first black American to earn a doctorate from Harvard University. Du Bois was clearly an intellectual to be reckoned with. In 1894, Washington offered him a teaching position at Tuskegee. Du Bois turned it down, choosing to remain in the North and accepting instead a teaching position at Wilberforce University in Ohio. In 1897, he wrote a paper in which he openly rejected Frederick Douglass's call for the newly freed Blacks to integrate into the larger white society, as every other national, racial, and religious group of immigrants had done before. In his refutation of this idea, Du Bois wrote, We are Negroes, members of a vast historic race that from the very dawn of creation has slept, but half awakening in the dark forest of its African fatherland. Now, I'm not entirely sure what that means or how what may or may not be occurring in the dark forests of the African fatherland had anything to do with the future of American blacks recently liberated on the other side of the world. But the tone is clear, and it's very familiar these days, a century and a half after he wrote it. So how is it then that the future of black Americans laid out by W.E.B. Du Bois, who believed that only black intellectuals like himself, which he called the talented 10th, 
the 10% of the black population that, in Du Bois's opinion, had the intellectual capacity to govern themselves, would be the path that the nation would end up taking. How is it that we turned our backs on Booker Washington, a man who'd been born into Southern slavery, who had grown up as someone else's property, but personally endured the prejudice and whippings and murder and intimidation firsthand, and yet who taught himself in the face of every hardship how to read, and who would then spend the rest of his life trying to lift all Black Americans into well-educated, economically successful equals? How did we turn our back on this man and instead follow the path of a Boston intellectual who'd never been a slave, who'd grown up in integrated high schools, who attended Harvard University, and who'd been radicalized at the University of Berlin, and whose Wikipedia page contains a bright red banner informing us that the story of W.E.B. Du Bois is part of the series on the topic of socialism in the United States. How did that happen? Well, it started with a slur, which was repeated as a lie, a lie that lived long enough to become taken as historical fact. Now, history tells us that Du Bois first supported Booker T. Washington, but could no longer do so after Washington's creation of, quote, the Atlanta Compromise, which, according to Wikipedia, quote, provided that Southern blacks who overwhelmingly lived in rural communities would submit to the current discrimination, segregation, and non-unionized employment, that Southern whites would permit blacks to receive a basic education, some economic opportunities, and justice within the legal system, unquote. It was, allegedly, Washington's support of the Atlanta Compromise that caused Du Bois to label him as the great accommodator. Well, that's fairly damning stuff. So I decided that I'd like to read this agreement. I'd like to see Washington's signature on such a humiliating contract. I followed the link from Wikipedia's Du Bois page to the one dealing with the Atlanta Compromise. The agreement was never written down, says the entry. Really, wasn't that odd? If this agreement was never written down, where did the term Atlanta Compromise come from? According to Wikipedia, quote, W.E.B. Du Bois coined the term Atlanta Compromise to denote Booker's earlier agreement. But there was no written agreement, and no verbal one either. There was only Washington's famed Atlanta exposition speech. And unfortunately for the memory of Mr. Du Bois, Wikipedia editors and seven generations of college professors Booker T. Washington's speech was written down, verbatim. On September 18, 1895, Booker Washington stood on the main stage of the Atlanta Cotton States and International Exposition. The room was packed with thousands and thousands of people, from the poorest black sharecroppers to the wealthiest and most powerful white Southern financiers and politicians. He began by thanking the organizers for including an exhibit hall showing the contributions of Negroes in the post-slavery South. And then he launched into a metaphor. A ship lost at sea for many days suddenly sighted a friendly vessel. From the mast of the unfortunate vessel was seen a signal. Water, water, we die of thirst. Now, as he unfolds the story, we discover that a ship sailing the wild coast of South America has run out of drinking water and that the crew is nearly dead from thirst. Cast down your bucket where you are, signals the other ship, at which point the captain of the stricken ship becomes furious. He again signals for water only, again, to have the other ship say, 
cast down your bucket where you are. The captain of the dying vessel finally casts down his bucket, hauls it up by rope back to the ship, and then finds himself drinking clear, delicious, fresh water. He'd unknowingly anchored his ship at the mouth of the Amazon River. To those of my race who depend on bettering their condition in a foreign land or who underestimate the importance of cultivating friendly relations with the southern white man who is their next-door neighbor, I would say, cast down your bucket where you are. Cast it down in making friends in every manly way of the people of all races by whom we are surrounded. Cast it down in agriculture, mechanics, and commerce, and domestic service, and in the professions. And then he turned to the rich and powerful white landowners who had never heard anything like this before. To those of the white race who look to the incoming of those of foreign birth and strange tongue and habits of the prosperity of the South, were I permitted, I would repeat what I say to my own race. Cast down your bucket where you are. Cast it down among the eight millions of Negroes whose habits you know whose fidelity and love you have tested in days when to have proved treacherous meant the ruin of your firesides. Casting down your bucket among my people, helping and encouraging them as you are doing on these grounds, and to education of head, hand, and heart, you will find that they will buy your surplus land, make blossom the waste places in your fields, and run your factories. Nearly 16 millions of hands will aid you in pulling the load upward, or they will pull against you the load downward. We shall constitute one-third and more of the ignorance and crime of the South, or one-third its intelligence and progress. We shall contribute one-third to the business and industrial prosperity of the South, or we shall prove a veritable body of death, stagnating, depressing, retarding every effort to advance the body politic. No race that has anything to contribute to the markets of the world is long in any degree ostracized. It is important and right that all privileges of the law be ours, but it is vastly more important that we be prepared for the exercises of these privileges. In conclusion, may I repeat that nothing in 30 years has given us more hope and encouragement and drawn us so near to you of the white race as this opportunity offered by the exposition. Only let this be constantly in mind that, far above and beyond material benefits, will be that higher good that, let us pray God, will come in a blotting out of sectional differences and racial animosities and suspicions and a determination to administer absolute justice and a willing obedience among all classes to the mandates of law. This, this coupled with our material prosperity, will bring into our beloved South a new heaven and a new earth. That's the text from which Du Bois and his talented 10th fashioned the fiction known as the Atlanta Compromise. Clark Howell, editor of the Atlanta Constitution, had seen tears in the eyes of both black and white Americans in that exhibition hall, 
Here was a glimpse of the promised land, a future that both black and whites could prosper in. The most powerful men throughout the South were lined up to shake the hands of this former slave. Howell telegraphed an associate at a New York paper saying, I do not exaggerate when I say that Professor Booker T. Washington's address yesterday was one of the most notable speeches, both as to character and as to the warmth of its reception, ever delivered to a Southern audience. The address was a revelation. The whole speech is a platform upon which blacks and whites can stand with full justice to each other. The Negro race in America, stolen, ravished, and degraded, Du Bois would later write, struggling up through difficulties and oppression, needs sympathy and receives criticism, needs help and is given hindrance, needs protection and is given mob violence, needs justice and is given charity, needs leadership and is given cowardice and apology, needs bread and is given a stone. This nation will never stand justified before God until these things are changed. W.E.B. Du Bois was demanding that white America, through the actions of the federal government, provide black America with sympathy, help, protection, justice, leadership, and bread. Give us the talented 10th these things, and we will distribute them to the remaining 90% of black America that Du Bois himself considered lazy and unreliable. Now, Booker T. Washington, on the other hand, did not ask for sympathy, help, protection, justice, leadership, and bread from white Americans because he could see on a daily basis that black Americans could provide those things for themselves. He bet a pocket watch on the idea that black students could produce bricks that were not only equal to those produced by white manufacturers, but were in fact better and that a white man holding a well-made brick and using it to build his own home was a more powerful antidote to bigotry than all of the demands and proclamations and manifestos that all of the intellectuals in the world have made in all of history. Washington lost the watch, but he won the bet. Now, after his speech in Atlanta, donations flooded in from all across the country, and with them, more substantial offers of help. One of these came from the president and part owner of Sears Roebuck and Company, another self-made man named Julius Rosenwald, who had also suffered insult and discrimination from the country that he nevertheless continued to love. It would be Rosenwald, spending his own money, who would fund and construct those 5,357 schools with his friend and partner, Booker Washington. But Washington would only see the first six of them. In the second week of November 1915, Booker Washington collapsed while on a fundraising trip to New York City. The diagnosis was what was then known as Bright's disease, necrosis of the kidneys. He was told he had hours or perhaps a day or two left to live and in great pain managed to catch the last train out of New York that night bound for Alabama. He arrived at Tuskegee shortly after midnight on November 14, 1915, and he died there a few hours later. He was 59 years old. In April of 1942, graduates of both the Tuskegee Institute and the Tuskegee Army Airfield 
were deployed to North Africa as the all-black 99th Pursuit Squadron. By February of 1944, they were flying escort missions deep into Germany. These men were well aware of the fact that should they have to bail out over German-occupied territory, they would most likely be executed on the spot. So, in an act of defiance, they painted the tails of their brand new P-51 Mustangs a brilliant blood red. They were now the 332nd fighter group, but we know them as the Tuskegee Airmen. The pilots just called them the Red Tails. Some of the men that crewed the bombers that they were escorting were racist, and some of them were not. But as the weeks went by, it became more and more apparent to both camps that racist or not, they were coming home at night thanks to the bravery and skill exhibited by these Tuskegee Airmen. On March 24, 1945, as the war was entering its final weeks, the Chicago Defender ran a headline that read, 332nd flies its 200th mission without a loss, based on information provided by the 15th Air Force. The Red Tails never lost a bomber, entered history in the same way that the Atlanta Compromise did, as a story repeated so often that it became common knowledge. Now, unfortunately, that claim, like the other one, turns out not to be true. Somewhere between 25 and 30 bombers were shot down while being escorted by the Red Tails. Many of those came on one mission where they were jumped by 300 enemy fighters. That was still about half the loss rate of other white squadrons. The Red Tails never lost a bomber got reported as true because it felt true. Booker T. Washington's theory that the only antidote to prejudice is excellence was proven yet again in the skies over Europe. And so, here we are. America chose to go down the path laid out by W.E.B. Du Bois. Demands for political rights combined with large cash payments from the federal government distributed by a handful of black politicians. How's that been working out for us? We ended up following Du Bois instead of Washington for one simple reason. It was easier. It was easier for black Americans because nobody wants to do the boring fundamentals and nobody wants to stack bricks in the middle of an Alabama August. But mostly, we followed the Du Bois vision because it was easier for white America. Du Bois's ideas took former slaves and presented them to white America as dependents. And that is a much easier pill for some white intellectuals to swallow. They didn't legally own black America anymore. They just made sure that there's no way they could survive if they ever left the plantation. Booker Washington would have demanded more from blacks, but he would have demanded a lot more from whites. He would have denied them the comfort of the soft bigotry of low expectations. He wanted black Americans to have their own businesses, their own money, and their own future in their own hands. Blacks wouldn't be getting a handout in Booker Washington's America because they wouldn't need it. In their hand instead would be the finest clay brick available at any price which you could purchase from them face-to-face -face as an equal. And in an era where we're told daily that there can be no common ground between black and white, a world of children screeching about things like cultural appropriation, demands for all black student dorms and all the rest. I present to you in closing, the most beautiful and fundamentally true words ever written about race in America, written by a black man of extraordinary talent. I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not. Across the color line, I move arm in arm with Balzac, 
and Dumas, where smiling men and welcoming women glide in gilded halls. From out of the caves of evening that swing between the strong-limbed earth and the tracery of stars, I summon Aristotle and Aurelius, and what soul I will. And they come all graciously with no scorn nor condescension. So, wed with truth, I dwell above the veil. Those words were written in 1903. They're from a book called The Souls of Black Folk, written by William Edward Burgard Du Bois.